We are back this morning in 1 Corinthians, so if you brought your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So um, we've taken a couple weeks off from Corinthians, so let me just do a quick recap. This is a church that's pretty young, and it has a lot of problems, a lot of problems in this church. And so this is not a church that if you're a pastor that you'd want to put your resume in to go pastor this church, unless you just wanted just a hard task. This is challenging. And so this church, um, word got back to Paul about these divisions, and so Paul is now writing back to them. Um, And so let's pick up. We're going to do all of chapter 2 this morning. And Paul says this in the beginning of chapter 2. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible, were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have, now we have comprehend, uh, hold on. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. For he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we uh, come to you just overwhelmed with how kind you've been to us to give us the mind of Christ. That the Spirit is at work this morning. We know that anything that we do... um, that is pleasing to you has been um, first given to us through the Spirit, so we are thankful for the Holy Spirit this morning. Uh, Lord, we know that he has given us ears to hear, eyes to see, so this morning we ask that you would open those ears and eyes up so that we may hear and see you this morning. Lord, I pray that we would leave this place um, trusting in your work and your work alone. And I pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So for those of you who are like familiar with 1 Corinthians, um, if, if, if you were to ask someone who is somewhat familiar with 1 Corinthians, most people would say that um, when dealing with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is more commonly dealt with chapters 12 and chapter 14. 
Uh, in chapters 12 and 14, that's where Paul talks about spiritual gifts. He talks about um, prophecy and tongues, things like that. But the Spirit is mentioned more here in chapter 2 um, than he is in all of chapter 12 and twice as much as he is in chapter 14. Uh, his role in chapter 2, however, is not about empowering believers with like spiritual gifts for service, um, different roles. It's, it's here. It's about bringing revelation, bringing knowledge and discernment to the Christian. Chapter 2 shows us the importance of the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation. Uh, I think Paul's emphasis on the Holy Spirit so early in this letter is quite deliberate. I think he's doing this on purpose. Remember, this letter, it's written to a church who's got a lot of problems, a lot of divisions, uh, and so before he begins to address these divisions, he starts with theology. Before he gets to practice, he always starts with doctrine. And so he, he's trying to get them to understand that your division issue possibly is from not having a right understanding of the Holy Spirit. He wants them to see that the heart of the Spirit's work is to bring revelation, to bring knowledge, to bring wisdom of Jesus to this church. The hope, I think, is that this revelation will lead the Corinthians away from these divisions and pride and towards humility and unity. So he spends this whole chapter talking about the Holy Spirit's role. Paul says in this chapter that the Spirit, he searches all things. And notice I'm saying he and not it. The Holy Spirit's not an it. Um, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a he. And so he searches all things, even the depths or deep things of God. So without the Spirit, think about this. Without the Spirit, we would have no access to the thoughts of God and would end up with nothing more than the Spirit of this world. So Paul, he, he ends chapter 1 with like his preaching strategy. And then chapter 2, he begins to unfold what this looks like. Chapter 1, he says, he ends with, let, no one, or let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so then he comes into chapter 2. In verse 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, so this is the verse that Dustin read just a few minutes ago. Uh, and thankfully, he set this up. I could spend all morning just preaching verse 2. Um, there's so much wrapped up into that. But this shows... This shows that Paul's preaching strategy was not um, in his own skill set. That's not what he was coming to boast about. Uh, and I love studying other preachers. Um, we are so blessed today with technology that, that through podcasts, YouTube, we can listen to some of the greatest preachers of our generation without ever leaving Huntington. Men like John Piper, Tim Keller, Kevin DeYoung, Matt Chandler, David Platt, Alistair Begg, and my personal favorite, Legan Duncan, we can listen to those in our car, just in our office, at home. Um, all of those men I just named, they all have tremendous skill. They each are eloquent orators in their own way. All have different cadence, um, voice inflection, and styles, but each in their own way are skilled communicators. And, and I'm guessing Paul was more skillful than what he's given himself credit. This is kind of like him saying, you know, I don't come in lofty speech, but I do find it interesting how He's saying he doesn't come in lofty speech, but Peter, who was one of the lead disciples of Jesus, says this about Paul in his second letter. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does 
in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. A um, couple things to point out from this. First, note, notice that, that Peter has the audacity to call Paul's writings scripture. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. This is deeply important for us. But Peter's making a huge um, statement here. He's giving validity to Paul's writings. He's putting, Paul is essentially saying, Paul being this elite Jew, he's essentially saying everything that Paul's writing is, is, is equal to the writings of Moses. Now, being a good Jew and having a high view of the Old Testament, he wouldn't just say that about anything. So here he's saying what, what Paul is writing, we need to consider as scripture, just as we do the Torah. That's huge. Um, second, notice how Peter says there are some things that Paul writes that are hard to understand. Amen, hallelujah. I wonder if he's reading Romans 9 in this moment. Because Romans is just a weighty, lofty book. Um, and so here's Peter, who is you know, arguably Jesus' number one disciple. If he has a hard time understanding some of Paul's writings, there's a great chance that you and I are going to have a hard time understanding some of Paul's writings. So Peter might challenge Paul's disclaimer here that he doesn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. Peter might say, yes, you actually come with you know, this you, with lofty speech and wisdom because you're hard to understand at times. I think what Paul is trying to communicate here is that these first two verses, he's not coming in the way these other orators are coming of the day. There are some really gifted communicators coming in Corinth. They could draw a crowd. Uh, these communicators were not necessarily even religious communicators. They would fit more into the category of like philosophy. So these philosophers would come gathering these crowds with their wisdom. Or in Greek, wisdom is called Sophia. So they spoke this Sophia, this wisdom that would draw crowds. Um, and Paul comes saying that he does not speak a worldly Sophia. Paul knows that what you win people with is what you win people to. That's so important for us. Paul knows that what you win people with is what you win people to. He knew that if they were going to draw this crowd with lofty speech and wisdom, which he could have done, being Paul, that was the only way he was going to be able to keep them. That once he was there planting this church and then he would leave, and then the next man to get up, maybe one of the laymen there in Corinth would fill his shoes, maybe couldn't speak with lofty, this lofty speech and wisdom. Then people would begin to leave and follow whoever speaks this lofty speech and wisdom. So Paul does not come that way. He realizes, like, we've got to come in a different way. We can't come with schemes and tactics. Um, there's also this group here at Corinth, um, probably Jews who are living in Corinth now, they were drawn towards signs and wonders. Paul knew that if that is what won them to Christ, like if they saw these miracles happening, then that is what they were going to continue to need in order for them to, uh, to stay impressed and to stay part of the church. You see this in the Gospels. Crowds of Jews would follow Jesus. Thousands would follow Jesus to see these signs and wonders. 
But then when they would ask for these wonders and signs, you know, Jesus, do this. You know, you know multiply the bread again. When Jesus didn't do that, the crowds, when they weren't entertained, they would begin to dwindle. Nothing has changed today. What you win people with is what it's going to take to keep those same people in your church. For example, if you have the churches, like maybe their big outreach every year is this big Christmas play. Um, if that's what draws most of their guests every year is this big Christmas play, then every year they got to do they got to outdo last year's performance because there's another church in town who probably has a bigger budget for their Christmas play, and those guests are going to start going to that one. Even in church planting circles, there's much debate about who you should hire first. Like who's the next guy you hire? And um, there's some different thoughts, debates on this. Some think the the best choice is like this dynamic rock star music director. You know, we already have one, Zach Simpson. So um, welcome back, Zach and Morgan, Mrs. Simpson. How cool was that? Uh, And so you have this dynamic rock star. That's who you hire. Because people love music, right? Like, there's some people who go to church just because of the music. The problem is, is that when the next church has a cooler, bigger band, those people are going to start going to that church. So some people think, well, you don't start with the music. You start maybe with youth ministry. Teenagers are by far the hardest people group, if you call them a people group, to get into church. You know, it's too, they're too cool for church or whatever. And so get, getting like this cool youth pastor, like if, if, if the teenagers like them and start going to church, then parents will get connected. Or maybe you should hire like the event-driven children's minister. Parents love having a place where their kids have things and activities to be a part of and do. Well, just remember that what you win people with is what you win them to. If you win people with this rock and cool band, then the moment the next church down the street has a cooler band, then people are going to up and go to that church. Uh, some churches love to do giveaways. You know, come to our church for Christmas for a chance to win an iPad. The idea behind churches doing this is that we will do almost anything to get people in the building so they hear the gospel message, and that will get them connected. Usually what happens is you're just reinforcing like this consumer mentality. What can I get if I go to church? That's a terrible way to grow a church. Gathering a bunch of people who come to something just because they get something for free. Now, I'm I'm not saying that giving away anything is is sinful. Um, I'm just saying what you need to realize that what you win people with is what you win them to. Paul was aware of the dangers of attracting people to the wrong thing. So he said that he did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul didn't grow this church at Corinth with iPad giveaways or passing out um, church at Corinth t-shirts or other Christian swag. Paul grew the church through preaching the gospel. Paul says in verse 2 that he has decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the truth of the gospel is how Paul says you should grow a church. And Paul's view of church growth does not necessarily mean numbers. Church growth is primarily about growing in spiritual depth, not numerical attendance. 
When Paul says that he knows nothing except Jesus Christ, he's not saying that we should just ignore the Old Testament. The Old Testament teaches us much about Christ, the coming Messiah, the suffering servant from Isaiah. The Old Testament points us to the Christ, um, so we need to know all of God's word. But Paul's preaching strategy is not with marketing tactics like a bait and switch, like, hey, let me get you here and then give you something else. But it's about faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus. See, when you try these other tactics, it reveals something about your understanding of the power of the cross. You're essentially saying the gospel doesn't have the type of power that could draw individuals to Christ, but a free gift is what the gospel is missing. See, we deceive ourselves to think that our gimmicks are what will change the hearts of men. The power of salvation is not found in our gimmicks, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's at work. Paul is not even rejecting preaching or persuasive preaching, but rather he's rejecting what is often the real danger in all preaching, that of self-reliance. The danger comes when preachers allow the form or content of a sermon to get in the way of what should be our single concern, which is proclaiming the gospel through human weakness. Um, it's accompanied through the powerful work of the Spirit so that lives are changed by this divine human encounter. That's what's happening right now. It's amazing to me, like, there's some Sundays where I cannot wait to get up to preach. You know, I, I have an exciting passage. I feel like I've, I, I, I have a good understanding of it. Um, studying was great, and then it comes to writing it out, more the homiletics, and I feel like, okay, like this Sunday, like lives are going to be changed, people are going to get saved, I'll get up and preach, and I feel good about it, and then after service, like people are just going with their lives, I don't, don't really hear any feedback, which I'm not saying I need feedback, but it's good when I think it's going to change Huntington to at least hear, like, I think that could change Huntington. Then there's, it's amazing to me that there's other Sundays where I come, like, fumbling up here, and I've had a hard week of prep. It's, I really don't have a great, gra I mean, just go back to Revelation series. Like, there are many Sundays I come into Revelation, like, I'm not sure exactly what this means, and preach, and then I would sit down and think, like, my goodness, that was a train wreck. That was, I just wasted 40 minutes of everybody's lives. And then it would be amazing, like later that afternoon, I'd get a text from somebody and would say, like, thank you so much for that passage. Like, that is exactly what I needed to hear this week. Like, the train wreck sermon is what you needed to hear. Like, why? Well, it's because there's another element. There's something going on that's not from me. The Holy Spirit is at work in your lives right now, and he's taking God's word, and he's working in your life to convict you of your sin, to encourage you in your situation. So there's a spiritual element that happens in a sermon that I am removed from. I can't do that. I can't just, I can't just make it happen. It's, it's a working of the Spirit. And so this is why exactly... Paul was content in preaching the foolishness of the cross. Um, he, he knows that that's where the power is. It's in the cross. We see this in verses three through five. 
In three, he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not, pl- were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is incredible here. Now, it's, it's, verse three is strange. This is normally not how Paul speaks. He says that he comes, he's with them in weakness and in fear, much trembling. Normally, it's Paul who's, you know, he's correcting people for having fear and anxiety. Do not fear. But here he is, he's telling us that he's coming in fear and much trembling. That is a phrase that he will use, but it's usually talking about salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But here he's saying that he is just in this weakness. We're not really sure what he means by this. There's a little clue maybe in Acts 18. In Acts 18, Paul is in Corinth, and um, the Lord speaks to Paul in Acts 18, saying this in verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So maybe this is what Paul is referring to by being in fear, much trembling, but we're not quite sure. We see in verse four that his speech and his message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. The point that he's trying to make is that he doesn't have the power through his words to change the hearts of men. I I can't change your heart. I can give you the gospel, I can even persuasive speech, but I cannot change your heart. It's only through the Spirit of God. So he's building this doctrine of the Holy Spirit here, of who the Holy Spirit is, what he does. He didn't want people to see, as we see in verse 5, to perceive that their faith was resting in something from Paul rather than resting in the power of God. So it wasn't like when Paul left that, oh, no, what are we going to do? That same power is there, whether Paul's preaching or not. This is, again, the idea of what you win people with is what you win people to. So Paul preaches the cross, which looks like the height of all foolishness. It makes no sense, but it's actually the pinnacle of all wisdom. For the Christian, the cross embodies the wisdom of God and displays the profound differences between creator God and humanity. Like, it makes no sense. Like, the cross, like, to think that God would come to die, like, that doesn't make any sense to this world. That's foolishness. How could God die is one problem with it. Um, why would he die for us? Why, you know, we're good already. Humanity would never find wisdom in the cross, which is where Paul transitions his letter to. He, he transitions to show this contrast between wisdom and the spiritual man with foolishness and the natural man. So that's this next section. Look at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, 
nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So we see this phrase here that, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. This does not mean that it's written in some kind of code or riddle where we need Benjamin Gates to find the secret treasure. That's not what this is talking about. Secret and hidden just means that the natural man cannot fully understand it. There is no omega code waiting to be discovered um, so that we can know the secret things of God. Some people think like if you take, like, if you look like in the book of Genesis, if you take the, the, if you use like a Hebrew Bible and you take the first seven letters uh, um, or the first word, like every seventh word, you take that, you have like the secret hidden message. That's not how a book is meant to be read. It's meant to be read like any other book. Um, there's no secret codes in the Bible. God has given you this incredible story, this love story, this rescue mission of how he's coming to seek and save those who are lost. He's not, he doesn't have hidden things in it. So these rulers here, it says that none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. What it means is these rulers didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear. This is something like a passage like Isaiah 6 talks about. Isaiah 6, incredible passage. I preached this a while back. Um, it's where Isaiah encounters the holiness of God. Um, this is that, that great commissioning of the Old Testament where... Isaiah, for the first time, sees himself as a sinner. He says, woe am I. Um, he has this encounter with God, and God gives him this commission. Um, Isaiah says, you know, here, here am I, send me. Right after that, in chapter 6, verse 9, God says this, and he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. The rulers of Jesus' day, like think about this, they literally crucified God. But this passage says they didn't understand what they were doing. If they understood that that was actually God, if their eyes would have been open, they wouldn't have crucified him because he's God. But don't miss the irony in this passage. The very ones who were trying to do away with Jesus by crucifying him were the ones, in fact, carrying out God's ultimate will. So how could they know what they were doing? Verse 11 says it was impossible for those, um, for those rulers to understand what they were doing because they did not have the mind of God. Listen to verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. I praise God for the truths of verse 11. That only you know your thoughts. You know, no one would be married. I'm convinced none of us would have any friends if others would know our thoughts, right? 
Like for those of you right now thinking like, when is he going to be done with this sermon? Like, I'm glad I don't know your thoughts. What's absolutely insane is God knows every one of our twisted, corrupt thoughts. And he still longs to be near us. What kind of love is that? That he knows everything you think about. And he still longs to be with you. The logic of Paul's argument here is just as you are the only ones who knows your thoughts, so also the Spirit is the only one who can comprehend the thoughts of God. So if you want to know the mind of God, only the Spirit can reveal that to you. So that's one of the roles that the Spirit plays in the life of a, of a Christian, is this revelation. Another role we see here is transformation. The role the, the Spirit plays in your life is this role of transformation. We see this in verse 12. The Holy Spirit gives the people of God the mind of God so that we become like God. The Christian life is a life of transformation. You can't continue to be who you used to be. The Holy Spirit's always at work in your life, changing you, growing you into the image of Christ. With the help of the Spirit, you should continue to desire the things of God. As you grow and you mature, God's thoughts, God's desires, his ways become yours. You begin to have the same mind. You begin to desire those same desires, have those same thoughts. But in verse 14, here's the contrast. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural person can't understand the spiritual things of God, but the spiritual person can understand the spiritual things and the foolishness of this world. So for those of you who did not grow up in church, you probably remember how you as a natural person did not accept the things of the spirit. They were foolishness to you. Um, that would be me. Like I, I became a Christian in college. Um, I can remember being in college thinking, why would anybody want to go to church on Sunday morning? I mean, it's, it's Sunday morning. Like, it's the time to sleep in. You're getting ready for football in the afternoon. Like, why would you give up Sunday morning to go to church? Why would anyone give 10% of their hard-earned income to the church? Who would do that? Why would you give things away when receiving things is better? The things of the Spirit of God do not make sense to the natural person. But when we receive the Spirit of God, then the things that once seemed like folly now make complete sense. It's like scales falling off your eyes. This is why Christians sing about being blind, but now we see. It took a miracle of God to bring sight to our eyes, but once he brings that light, then the entire world begins to make sense. You have this biblical worldview. So it was, you know, I can think back to those years where I used to think that way, and now I cannot wait to be here on Sunday morning. I, I can't wait to, to help others out um, and to give to others. It's, it's so much fun, um, but it's because God has taken the scales off my eyes, much like he does with Paul, with Paul's life. Verse 15 and 16 transition to the spiritual person. Paul says this about, about the spiritual person. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as, so as to instruct him? 
but we have the mind of Christ. What an incredible statement that we have the mind of Christ. A lot of people in our culture today, they, they would consider themselves, you know, quote unquote spiritual. You, you've probably worked with some of them, go to school with some of them. You know, say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not really religious, but I'm just spiritual. You know, Paul would say to them, without the spirit of God, you cannot be spiritual. That, that all you are is religious. Um, sadly, verse 15 has also been abused by many as a way to make this superior class of Christian. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So the logic goes something like this. I am a spiritual person um, who knows the things of God, and so I can judge all things, which includes all of you, but I am to be judged by no one. You kind of see that logic there, right? Well, too many churches have these cult-type leaders causing spiritual abuse on its members by abusing this verse. They kind of put them down saying, you know, you need to live this way. You need to give to this mission. You need to give to all of this, you know, we need your money. But then they turn around and they live however they want to live, and you can't say anything to them because they're this elite class of Christian. No one can judge them. And they'll use this verse to say, you can't judge me. How dare you judge me? If we leave this verse in its context, then the spiritual person is anyone who has the spirit of God. There are not two types of spirits given to us. Pastors don't have one greater Holy Spirit and the members have a lesser spirit. We each have the same Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. So what does it mean to judge all things? Maybe some of your translation says and judge, it says examine, examines all things. So the idea here is that God's spirit is in you, then you are a spiritual person and you should examine everything to make sure it matches up with the ways of God. So right now, you should be examining, does this sermon match up with the word of God? Don't just take my word as what I say is the gospel. You need to discern for yourself, does it match up with scripture? You need to do that with everything in life. Does this match up? You need to examine all things. Now, when Paul says that he is to be judged by no one, if that's left in the greater context of these chapters, then we will see in chapter four that what he means is that no one but God will ultimately be able to judge him. Having God be our ultimate judge and, and having others hold you accountable to your actions are not in contradiction to one another. In fact, in chapter 5, we will see that Paul says he has already passed judgment on this one particular guy in this Corinthian church, but Paul cannot ultimately judge that man's soul. Only God can judge. Let me close this morning with some final thoughts. As I just think through this chapter and the season that we're in as a church, I just wonder, what would it look like in your life to resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? You know, what if that's your whole life's purpose? You knew nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What, what I mean is, like, what would it look like if you set aside all your fears or gimmicks or schemes and trying to get people to know and trust Christ. You know, I'm so guilty of this. I, I, I think my gimmick is like this, 
what I'm guilty of is thinking there's like this divine moment in a friendship. And what, what I mean is like, I have many friends who need Christ. They're not saved. And so I, I think, well, I, I'm going to just invest in them. I'm going to get to know them, spend time with them, find out about what they love, what they, you know, what they care about, their interests, get to know their family. I just want to dive all in and get to know them. Then I think at some moment there's this divine moment in the relationship where God just opens up this door. And it's like they're going to say, just like at the flipping jailer that we talked about last week, that he just says, okay, so how much, you know, what, what do I need to do to be saved? I think there's like this moment, I tricked myself, deceived myself to think that in my friendships, there's going to be that divine moment. So for me, it's like, what would it look like if I just didn't wait for this divine moment, which never happens, and just spoke about Jesus? said, hey, you know, and the same for a lot of us. You, you have friends, family who they will listen to you talk about Jesus because they love you and they know that that's something important to you. And for me, like, it's like, why don't I just say, hey, can I grab lunch with you one day and talk to you about, about Jesus and how he's changed my life? Most of my friends, I think, would say, sure, why not? But I keep waiting for this divine moment to happen. I think I overcomplicate and overanalyze evangelism. I just need to preach Christ and him crucified. What would that look like for you this week? What would it look like if tomorrow you just met up with somebody and just didn't try to do any kind of gimmicks or schemes? You just simply just, I want to talk to you about the gospel. What, how Christ has changed my life. How his death and resurrection is, I'm forever indebted to. What would that look like for us as a church if we lived that way? Not only that, I also want you to gain tremendous courage and confidence from this passage. The truths of this passage take all pressure off of you in evangelism. I don't know if you caught that. But this passage frees us up. Yes, we need to study apologetics. We need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. But don't think for a moment that because you had a, a good defense for the problem of evil when you're talking to your atheist friend, coworker, roommate, that somehow your defense is what brought them to their conviction in need of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's at work in their life, and he's bringing these relationships together. The friends in my life who are lost, like I think like what's because I've just invested in them, it's really the Holy Spirit's working in their lives, and God just wants me just to speak to them. That's it. So here, we do need to be ready to give an answer, but we're not the ones who's going to convince someone to believe in the foolishness of the cross. It's foolishness. It's going to take a work of God to change their hearts, not our persuasive speech. So this morning, I preach, not with a lofty speech or wisdom. This is where you would say amen. We knew that already. But I have decided 
to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's probably why there's some days I feel I sit down, I feel like, man, that was pointless. Why would I, I preach that? And it, God used that sermon to work in your life in such a way that I couldn't persuade you with the best speech I could ever give. It's because it's a working of God. So this morning, will you repent of your sin today and put your trust in Jesus Christ? the perfect one who died for you, who took your place on that Roman cross so that you could have new life. That if you put your trust in him, God will give you eternal life. Do you believe the foolishness of the cross? If you do, then stop right now and praise his Holy Spirit for making himself known to you. And if you've never publicly confessed of your sin and surrendered your life to Jesus, as your Lord and Savior, then today is the day. Why wait another day? You are here today because the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. It's not a coincidence. It's not because um, you came because someone invited you. Yes, that's the means that God has used to bring you here, but just know that if you're here this morning and that you've, you've never confessed of your sin, you've never given your life to Jesus, know that the Spirit is at work in your life to show to you that God loves you he desperately wants you, that he died for you. Um, if you have questions about how to become a Christian, I'm going to be just standing right here in the back during these songs, and I would love to talk to you about that. Whoever invited you would love to talk to you about that. But today's the day. Don't wait another day. Give your life to Jesus today. As the band, if you guys would um, come back up and lead us in music, um, I just want to pray that Again, that the Spirit of God would just continue to reveal to us the things of God, give us the mind of God. Lord, we come this morning knowing there's nothing magical I can say. There's no, um, there's no bait and switch um, to where I can move in the hearts of men and women. Lord, we know that um, changing the hearts is something that only can come from the Spirit of God. So, Lord, we ask that your Spirit move upon us, that we would be a changed people, that people right now would just even be confessing of sin they need to confess of. Um, uh, Lord, that you would make things known to us. So, Lord, I pray that you continue to give us the mind of Christ so that we can think like Christ and live like him. Lord, I pray that you'd empower us this week to, to be bold with our faith, that we're not calling anyone to rest in our power, but, but in yours. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would um, give us a boldness to share the gospel, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, that it has power to work. So I pray that we would be a church that preaches Christ and him crucified and that alone. That we're not um, going to try different gimmicks and schemes to get people to come to our church, but that we just try something like love. That we just love them and um, preach the gospel, um, which we need to hear every single day. So Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for, for your spirit who has revealed it to us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.